0: You're listening to an ODI live event podcast. You can find out more about events and research by the Overseas Development Institute by visiting our website, odi.org. So, I stand before you as someone who used to be chairman of a network of finance ministers under the HIPIC initiative. So I know very much the pain we went through to be able to deal with the debt issues. But then I also went on to become a lender at the African Development Bank. So I know that it is possible to get it right. And that is the first thing I want to leave you a thought today. Africa can get it right. There's nothing new we have not dealt with before and we we can resolve. Because this matter is not about debt. It's about fiscal discipline. A number of countries have been cited here because they get their fiscal right. They make an effort at raising revenues. They've got well-planned public investments. And it's part of the attractive lenders. Because that's what the problem is. The lenders are knocking on the doors of finance ministers. Can we lend you money? So it is possible to get it right. And I'll give you an idea how, in spite of a few accidents which have been described here. But I want to begin by thanking you, ODI, for for doing this. Because what you have done is something I've been struggling with over the last few months. Reading the Western press, you'd think there is a crisis right now in Africa. It was almost like uh, here we are again. And I want to tell you that, in spite of the few difficult cases we have had, the majority of the African countries are getting it right. As they did, by the way, in 2008, during the global financial crisis, there was this view that Africa was the continent most likely to suffer. It actually turned out that Africa was the continent best prepared to withstand the shock because of fiscal discipline over the previous few years and the shock absorbers which had been built. So I want to say, I want to thank you for organizing this debate, because you're bringing some kind of a sensible conversation in a polarized debate. So it's polarized how? You open up a newspaper. Oh, China is about to go to colonize Africa again. But where is the evidence? I've looked at a number of countries to see actually China's contribution to their debt. Often it is actually the lowest part of the ladder. The second thing, African countries are going to build new white elephants. All right? But I've looked around to look for these white elephants. I can't find them. What I find are railways, are dams, are highways being built. Because of the second problem I want to tell you. This conference says... Avoiding a new crisis, a new problem. But what was the old problem? The debt crisis in Africa in the 1990s and the 1980s was not caused by the eurobonds, was not caused by China. Most of the debt was from international financial institutions. And most of the debt was concessional lending, by the way by the the whole bank, regional banks, and bilaterals. It was not commercial lending. So why were African countries unable to pay at the time? They were unable to pay because of the social, political, economic crisis which the continent was going through. Economies were contracting everywhere. Civil wars in almost 12 countries. And so many of these countries were experiencing negative growth at a time of increases population. That was the debt crisis, as it is described. I prefer to call it the growth classes. The dark days, the years of Afro-pessimism. It was not caused by debt. It was caused by poor growth prospects arising out of a social political crisis. So if we're to address a new problem, it is extremely important we distinguish it from the old problem. The new problem, I would like to describe the following way. What Antoinette's successor, the IMF, has called a trilemma. So how do you describe it? In the next 20 years, Africa is going to face the biggest challenge humankind has ever faced. With these uh, population dynamics, which are very familiar, the continent will have to make huge amounts of investments in human development. In the infrastructure development to be able to reap the so called demographic dividend. That is well understood. It's a challenge we face. Now, I've heard also, without uh, uh, a strong case there, that we need to make a big effort to raise domestic revenues. I totally agree. I think the AMF feels that all our countries can make an effort around. 2 3% of GDP extra, not immediately, but over maybe five years. Yes, I do agree. Would it improve public financial management? Yes, of course, and the quality of investments. But believe me, uh, just now Antonette is here, she can correct me. Uh, I've at the numbers for many countries in sub Saharan Africa, and I think one of these papers makes the point. It is extremely difficult at this stage for many of these countries to go above 18% of GDP in revenue. Kenya, a long time ago, used to have around 21%. It was the star performer. Of course, if you exclude Seychelles, Seychelles are 32%, I don't know how they do it. But many other countries are struggling between 14%, 17%, 18%. There's work to be done, but it takes time until the economies are transformed. So the domestic base is what it is, 18% of GDP. Then we have got these population dynamics in the next 20 years we've got this infrastructure gap. So, what you call the trilemma's was, A, the domestic base of revenue is very narrow, the requirements to invest in the future are very high, and you want to contain debt. So how do you close this? And I want to suggest to you that it can be done, but it cannot be done in a polarized debate of, I told you so. It cannot even be done, in my view, by bringing back what I call external agents of restraint. I've heard this morning say, well, get the IMF to do this, get the World Bank to do the other, get the donors to come back, it won't happen. It won't happen. It will have to be an internally generated effort at anchoring fiscal discipline. It can't be external parties telling African Rambians, don't do this, don't do that. Those days are over, they are gone. It is about national institutions. It's about national governments. It's about national parliaments, making sure that the fiscal discipline, which we built over many years, is consolidated. But I think to go back, to go back to those days where, by, uh, I won't call it conditional lending, but to those days of uh, here's the money, here are the policies, that will not do. But what can do is to have the conversation we're having now. So, what are the instruments? we have to ensure that countries do the right things. Do you know one of the things which have gone wrong? I've observed about four countries who have borrowed money and I've tried to see what this the was. Forget about easy money, of course, Uh, you know, bankers wanting to lend that enterprise. (laughs) It is what I call the asymmetry of negotiating power. Many of these countries Going to negotiate in the Eurobond market or elsewhere. They've got extremely bad deals. At least two of them, which I've seen. I, I called up one of the advisors. I said, This was a bad deal for the country. But the countries don't have negotiating abilities. So they sign on to some of those uh, bad uh, deals. So I think one thing you could do, ODI, for example. I know in the past there have been issues of you build debt capacity but there's no political will to see it through. But it is important we rebuild the capacity of the countries to manage their debts and negotiate good deals. You can hire expensive lawyers from London, or expensive investment bankers, but they often end up negotiating for the lenders, not for the borrowers. I think if we can find a way to rebuild the capacity of the countries to plan their uh, issuance, to manage the debt, to plan the investment, I think we'll come to a sweet spot. And I'm hoping you could develop some research along these lines. We we'll get out of this polarized conversation to actually a constructive conversation. What can we do? Now, we'll have, a few, we'll have a few of our greases, of course. There'll be always the bad examples point to which have done terrible things, that's for sure. But that is true for Ukraine, it's true for Zambia. There's nothing African about it. So, those kind of outliers, we have to treat them as outliers. I'm talking about the steady state case, wanting to close this trilemma of investing their people in a narrow domestic base, but wanting also to manage debt as I've learned to do over the past years. That for me would be the kind of work ODI is well equipped to do because you have no, how do I call it, uh, you're not speaking for this or that government, you're not speaking for this or that lender. You are taking an objective scientific view of the problem. My second point, and uh, I'm not sure how to frame this for you. Uh, In the 1980s, uh, many African countries went through crunching structural adjustment programs. Forget what Greece went through. This was nothing. Many of our countries went through tough times. And those tough times are the ones which had prepared us during the global financial crisis. The, the balances, both external and internal, were reasonably okay. Level of reserves were reasonably okay. We no longer had overvalued currencies, maybe except one, I don't know. Things had worked very well. And that had built a momentum for growth, which you can see now in Africa. Because again, looking at newspapers <coughs> about the impending crisis in Africa makes me look, wait a minute. But if you exclude the top three engines of our continent, South Africa, Nigeria, and Angola, which have been going through particular challenges, the rest of the continent is doing quite well. Many of the other countries are growing at above 6%. But because South Africa, Nigeria, and Angola account for about 52% of the GDP, you often see numbers which look quite bad. But the rest of the continent is moving on. And I'm not persuaded for a moment that we're about to throw all of that away, because even the people who not accept So I want to say here that a combination of good research uh, without polarized views, a combination of good research on how you manage the new type of problem, which is different from the old type of problem, <coughs> would be extremely helpful. I've heard people say there'll be no other hippic, but hippic was meant to resolve a multilateral debt problem, mainly. Hippic was meant, meant to do with a multilateral debt problem, which in the past could not be forgiven. So it was a breakthrough to forgive multilateral debt. But there are countries, a few, who had been borrowing money on the London Club uh, or some other expensive loans from bilateral. And that had to be structured often in the Paris Club. And uh, in the last few years, I've not heard many countries do that. So I think that if you focus on those issues, you'll find many clients uh, on the African continent. Now, I'm sure yesterday you discussed the China in detail. I will not uh, do so. I simply want to say here, from where I stand, that I think that (coughs) one thing which uh, Africa's cooperation with China anybody has enabled us to do is to close the infrastructure gap in a significant way. From the Lunatic Express, do you know it was built? Mombasa to Nairobi, all the way to Uganda, do you know it was built? Does anybody know? By the British. By the British? Does anybody know? I think it was in 1906. Can you imagine? East Africa's largest economy is still running on a rail built in 1906 and so they went forward they borrowed money to do this railway now there could be issues about so were this investment done right the phasing the sequencing the timing my views yes same for ethiopia and uh, djibouti same for many other power stations now could we do it better yes this of course something which we african governments and the Chinese uh, colleagues have to discuss how to improve on the lending programs, on the choice of investments, on ensuring that there is good performance so that investments return are realized. But the, the idea that somehow African countries are walking into this trap, eyes closed, is okay for a headline, but it is not the reality on the ground. Now, when it comes to investments badly selected, this applies, actually, to all the lenders, including some badly done projects, incidentally, from institutions, including the one I was leading. That's a totally different problem. How do you make sure that in your PFM, the choice of investment is done in a way which will bring you uh, the returns? So I think working out of this kind of, uh, I hate to use the word caricatures, and focusing on the real problem would be extremely helpful. And I want to commend you for that now so G20 so shall we go to the G20 have a new charter on that I am discussing that with my friend uh, Jeremy. because the G20 was born out of a crisis you know since uh, since about when um, maybe the last century each time I've got a crisis a new organization is set up so, World War I, you had the League of Nations, World, World War II, you have the United Nations. By 1973, it had shown its limitations during the global energy crisis. So, the G7 was set up, an informal arrangement. I think it became later G7 plus one, then plus two, I think. Then minus one. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, you had a new club of the rich to try and deal with the energy issue. But come fast forward to the global financial crisis, of course, even the G8 was no longer fit for purpose. So the G20 was set up to deal with the near-death experience which we are all facing. In my judgment, the first meeting in London here was excellent. It achieved results. It stabilized the global economy. It put out the fires and uh, Gordon Brown. But since then, it is in my own assessment that probably the G20 is not as effective as it was at the beginning. And therefore, we'll have to be uh, sure that this group, where the majority of Africans are locked out, yes, they are locked out. But it's a club, to use the, uh, the word, it's a club of the rich and the super rich. So those of us who are said to be systemically unimportant are out of the room. So if we do that, we have to make sure there is a degree of ownership so that it is not, again, uh, people speaking to Africans from the high hills. It will have to be something which can be owned so that the fiscal discipline is anchored from internal processes. So I would hope, uh, Jamie, that as we discussed it, the role of the G20 would be a supportive one because it will be talking to people who are not in the room. It will be talking to people out of the room. It is true South Africa is there because of its uh, size, and the African Union has a representation uh, with two, two seats as invited guests, as invited guests, not as participants. So what is, the, uh, in my view, the best way forward? I go back to the issue of it happens, it will happen in the countries. My country has been started several times. We are still a very poor country. But we manage our debt, quite okay. Investments are planned reasonably. We know how much to borrow, both internally and externally, because there's that internal self-discipline. You can balance the needs and uh, the available resources. I am satisfied that every single African country can actually get to that point of managing their finances sensibly. I'll end with an example Botswana. Which again, Antoinette knows very well this story. In 2008, during the global financial crisis, diamond prices fell below the floor. You know diamond prices I usually face to go during a crisis like that. Now the government of Botswana approached us, uh, African Development Bank, I mean, I still think I'm there. Mm-hmm. And they said, "Look, um, A, we have this problem in our budget. I think they were running about 12 percent deficit or about. We don't want to raid our sovereign wealth fund. That was the level of discipline. We don't want to raid our sovereign wealth funds. But we don't want to increase our uh, dependence on outside debt either. So they did. They crafted their own internal program, adjustment program. They cut expenditures, They increased domestic revenues. But they still had a small gap in, uh, in the budget, and they came to us and we gave them the biggest budget support loan the bank ever gave, which was $1.6 billion. Now, that is some money. But do you know what? Within a year, Botswana was negotiating with us to prepay the loan because they had been able to stabilize the the economy. Of course, bankers don't like clients who prepay the loans because... (laughs) (laughs) But I I took the view that, wait a minute, um, these guys deserve support. The other country is Mauritius who did exactly the same. So I think, if I recall, I went to the board and accepted that they prepared the loan, because they had established their finances. So it is possible, it is doable. Some will lack the capacity, we should help them to get the capacity. A few will lack the political will, so is Ukraine and Greece. But I want to thank you for what you have done, because you are taking the word an impending doom and crisis in Africa, at a time when actually, in my view, with exception of those three countries who are struggling, and a few countries who have done things wrongly, that the majority of countries are getting things right and we can get there. So I want to thank you and wish you well uh, for your future work. Thank you. Thank you for listening. For more ODI live event podcasts, find us on SoundCloud or subscribe to the Overseas Development Institute podcasts via iTunes.